0: me, and I am a Kenyan, and I do not preach that often, so that I, as I think about, about uh, Pentecost and the tongues of fire coming upon us, which I'm praying all of you do ex- experience this morning, I was thinking, you know, maybe what I should pray for is a tongue of fire to come upon me, and it will make a big sign that says, you know, an S and the S will be for student, student preacher. Okay, so, but that was not my first thought. Being a Kenyan, I love the fact that Pentecost was about many tongues, and, you know, again, just came before the dispersion of the church, and my first thought as I was thinking of what I would like my tongue to read above my head, I was thinking as a Kenyan, and it would have been an L for a learner. And then I remembered that somebody said that if you do this, it means you're a loser in this culture. So let's stick to the S, all right? And then just to prime you up a little bit on this Pentecost uh, Sunday so that, you know, you sort of get tuned to my accent, all right? I'm going to teach you Kiswahili words, praise the Lord, all right? And we say, Buana Asifiwe. And we don't say it with shame. We don't mumble it. We yell, Buana Asifiwe. So when I say, Buana Asifiwe, please yell, Buana Asifiwe. And I'll feel right at home. Okay, ready? <laughs> Buana Asifiwe. Buana Asifiwe. Amina, thank you very much. So he would have turned 20 this February. We had waited for him, celebrated him, prepared a room, and as recently wedded expectant new parents, prayed over a fitting name for him or her because we did not know his gender. I loved poking at his little bulges on his mother's tummy to see if he was awake or not. His mother didn't like that, as sometimes he would protest by stepping on her bladder, as she said. We were amazed at the miracle of life conceived. And I remember the day, the first day I watched a flicker of his heartbeat on the ultrasound. We were amazed by the miracle of life incubated into human form. We couldn't wait to hold him in our, ha- in our arms. The day before my birthday, February 18th, We saw the doctor. She said she expected us in the next 24 to 48 hours and that things looked really, really good. Early the next morning, Marcy woke me up and said she had felt no movement at all that night. Later that morning, the doctor sent us us for an ultrasound. The sonographer was less polished. There is no heartbeat, he said. Your baby is dead. The next day was a blur. This is 20 years later, okay? (laughs) C-sections, people coming and going at the hospital. I was numb. I felt the need to be strong for my wife, Marcy. At some point, late that evening, somebody drove me home because I, I don't know how, but I didn't have my car. Early the following morning, Stuck in Nairobi traffic at six AM on my way back to Marcy's hospital room. My African men don't cry damn broke. The deluge of tears threatened to overcome me. Ugly wails that wouldn't stop. Why Lord? I asked. I was glad to be alone in that car. And glad now that I cannot remember the things that I might have said to God that were not appropriate. Let the hospital take care of it, said one of my very dear siblings, suggesting that we don't bother with the funeral ceremony. Perhaps it was all for good, said a loving parishioner. You never know what deformities he might have had. I don't care. I wanted to respond, I hate you for wishing our son dead. We just want to hold him and hear him cry. We want a proper funeral. We want to mourn. We want to make it a big deal. And there are more blurry memories. We moved from, leave us alone. Don't say anything. To, now why is there nobody here to sit with us when it is so dark and cold in our house? Lord, why did you wait for nine months before taking him away?
1: You know, it hurt so bad that
0: Marcy and I couldn't hold a sensible conversation that I can remember. One day, she was gone and I didn't know where she was. Was God going to take her away from me too? Late that night, she called to say that she loved me and could I pick up from the bus station. She had gone on a long journey and wasn't our way back. Why was it so difficult for her to be with me? Now, as I tell this story, I know many of you have been through a lot worse than this. Perhaps you are right now living through some fresh pain in your lives. Maybe this morning you could hardly get out of bed and putting on your shoes just seems such a difficult thing to do. And why do you have to be the one who is always in physical pain? Lord, can't you see I want to serve you, you might say. That I would serve you if my joints were not always on fire. How on earth, Lord, do you expect me to take care of my family and I don't have a job anymore? Someone might be asking the shame, the fear. Why does God, why does nobody seem to understand for those others of you, you, your pain might be watching those who, who are, whom you know that are hurting. You reach out to them to help, but are frustrated because it is so difficult. You open your arms to embrace them, but they lash out at you and they kick you, as though you are the enemy and not a friend. For both the hurting and those who are trying to walk alongside those who are hurting, perhaps the book of Job has resonated with your cry at some point. It has for me. Eugene Peterson, in his uh, introduction to the book of Job, writes, Job suffered. He asked, why? He asked, why me? And he put this question to God. He asked his questions persistently, passionately, and eloquently. He refused to take silence for an answer. He refused to take cliches for an answer. He refused to let God off the hook. Job did not take his suffering quietly or piously. He disdained going for a second opinion to outside physicians and philosophers. And he lashed out at them. We've read about this. Job took his stance before God and there he protested his suffering and protested mightily. And his friends protested back at him, didn't they? So this is the language of of the human experience, of grief, of suffering, and of frustration. It is the language of lament. Difficult. So what is lament? Lament is to express sorrow, mourning, or regret about something or someone, such as the loss of life. This is a definition I found somewhere. What grief is felt deep in the soul emerges outward, and it's expressed demonstratively. And for those who are around, you can't ignore it. I want to propose that there are two types of laments that we have encountered in the book of Job. And I want to call them like two, two faces of, the, of a coin. One face is the lament as the cry of those who are hurting. And this is one face of the coin. And this was Job's lament. Starting in chapter 3, after enduring crushing losses, he railed against the day that he was born, against his mother's womb, and even against the miracle of birth. He wished he had been stillborn, wished he could now die. And we read in 3, uh, verse 20, why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul?" to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than hidden treasures. That was a man after God's own heart that was saying these things. Lament of those who cry because it really hurts. The second type of, type of lament, the other side of the, of the coin, the other face of the coin, is the lament of, of those who respond to other cries. The response of his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, is understandable, folks. They were responding to their friend's broken world and his disturbing cries. Job, they cried, that's not true. God is not unfair. How dare you? Don't you know that he has a plan for you? A plan to prosper you and not to harm you? A plan to give you hope and and a future? You've heard those words, haven't you? Don't you know that in all things... God works for good those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Far be it for you to say such horrible things about a loving, living God. You're thoroughly mistaken, they told him. Repent of your sins, and you will be fine. Be strong, Job, they said. Perhaps you felt the emptiness of such words as you tried to comfort one of your own friends or loved ones. And even as you did, it felt like it just made things worse. Well, the book of Job has confirmed to us that when you say such things, you made it worse. Let us look at these two sides of the beaten, battered, I imagine a copper coin with the beaten sides, and we'll ask what they looks, look, look like, the two sides of this. We'll ask what we should know, and maybe what we might be able to do in those circumstances. And so I want to start with the lament of those who hurt. What are some things we know about the lament of those who hurt? Perhaps naming some characteristics, we can learn how to live better in this lament that is evidence of a broken world. I have five brief observations to share about the lament of the hurting. The first one is this, and it becomes very obvious to us all when you encounter somebody who is hurting. Lament, is characterized by tunnel vision. The reality is, at one level, Job knew the things that you were saying were not entirely true. But clearly, reason was not in his field of vision right now. All he could see was the pain. Have you been in that frustrating uh, position where people are trying to correct you, and what you want to say is, so what do you think I am, stupid? I know these things. Be quiet. Just leave me alone. You see, this is not the time for reason and platitudes. The unfairness, the tunnel vision, is all that exists. All you're trying to do is make it through the next hour. Make it through the next minute. Maybe just make it through the next second. You can't see any further or broader than that. Your pain blurs your vision and you become myopic. Trying to keep your head above the water for the next breath is the most important thing in your life at that point. The second thing about lament is that it acknowledges that there is a corpse in the room. It doesn't mean words about the perceived injustice or hurt or loss. It often uses raw and unfettered language listen to Job in chapter 19 and I'll be skipping verses uh, verse 6 know, know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me verse 10 he tears me down on every side till I'm gone he uproots my hope like a tree his anger burns against me he counts me amongst his enemies enemies he has alienated my family from me. in Verse 13. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. Verse 17. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Verse 20. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my tears. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get in half of my flesh? He names the corpse. And the corpse is lying there in the sun, decomposing. Can't you smell it? Don't you see it? Can't you see the injustice, the sickness, the pain? Can't you smell death? My third thought about lament is this. It is... A cry out to God in a broken world. In other words, lament is biblical. Clearly, we have experienced it. And it's in many books of the, of the Bible. You see it in the book of Job, of course, Lamentations, Psalms, Jeremiah, and actually in the Gospels as well. You see, in the, in the Gospels, it is Matthew 2.18, acknowledging King Herod's murder of infants as he sought to kill the baby Jesus as prophesied in Jeremiah 31:15, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel is the mother of the nation of Israel and she refuses to be comforted as she cries for her children. Lament is our Lord Jesus, the suffering servant, anticipating the great injustice about to be meted on him on the night that he was betrayed, he's in the garden of Gethsemane, grasping for some love from his sleepy friends. He cries in Matthew 26, 38 and 39, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Lament is Christ crying on the cross later that, that the following day. Matthew twenty seven forty six, when he cried to the Lord, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you had me just bear the weight of the world? Lament is the language of the heart. Reaching out to God in a broken world. It is biblical. But here's the fourth thought about lament. Lament and praise are twin sisters as we read the scriptures. They go hand in hand. You see, our culture loves praise and celebration and dwells on joyful times. How many times have I complained that when there was a worship service uh, that the songs just seem to be a dirge because I want to praise and raise my hands in praise. But the Psalms are a quintessential example. Songs of praise partner seamlessly flowing into songs of lament and back. Job 19, too, is punctuated by praise in the midst of much lament. And we read this earlier in the kids' sermonette. I know my Redeemer lives. That was a celebration. And that in the end, he will stand on earth. In looking at the characteristics of lament, I want to also propose that it is not entirely without boundaries. It might have sounded like it's a feeding frenzy. You're allowed to just do anything and just pour out anything. Here are some thoughts about what lament is not. There are some guardrails. Lament is not despair. It is not whining. It is not a cry into a void. Lament recognizes the struggle of life and cries out for justice against existing injustices. Rides, uh, writes uh, Sung Chang Rai in his book Prophetic Lament, which I recommend uh, for anybody who is uh, thinking of, of reading more on this subject. Even in the secular world, where there's a lot of lament that this country has actually experienced in the last couple of years, lament reaches to the recesses of the heart and it's crying for something better, some justice. And from a Christian worldview, we recognize that what it's crying for is God. It's crying for God's justice. Second thing is that lament does not explain suffering or even try to explain suffering. Because doing so would instruct us on how to live so that we can avoid suffering. We learn from Job that suffering is not always a result of your sin. We learn that God allows suffering sometimes and it actually has may have nothing to do with you. But here's also another truth. It is not God who causes that suffering. It is the brokenness of the world. And Satan's role In your lament is this. He's trying to separate you from God. And that was his intention for for Job, wasn't it? So lament does not explain the suffering or the source or any of that. And don't expect it to. Finally, lament does not deny God or blaspheme God or shake its fist against God. That would not be lament. That would be despair. Despair. And here's another thing about lament. It is not an excuse for sin. And I thought this was important. That in Job chapter 1, 22, it says, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And the reality is that temptation knocks on the door in times of great suffering. What does it matter, you might think, in your darkness? God has abandoned me. Let's eat, drink, and be merry and numb the pain that I feel. Suffering may bring the temptation of self-harm on the other end, or maybe even the temptation to harm others. It might bring temptation of addictions, bring them from the deep recesses of the place where you thought you had tucked them away when you got saved, and the temptations that come with addictions, substance abuse, or even just viciousness it might just come back and it becomes a temptation it surprises you. Those are but five characteristics i found as I've read volumes and volumes and lament I want to look on the other side of the coin of lament lament as a response to those who are suffering you know one of the things that uh, is clear in the scriptures is that we are called to lament Ecclesiastes 7 2 says it is better to go to, the, to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting for death is the destiny of everyone the living should take this to heart Romans 12:5 is a little bit more focused. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those two who mourn. The twin sisters of praise and lament. So Job's friends began with a good idea. With a right idea. They responded to his hurt. And, and when they saw him from a distance, and this is Job 2 from verse 12, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. And we all know and have discussed over the last few months that when they stayed silent, they seemed to be doing the right thing. When they opened their mouths, they became additional desolation to Job rather than consolation. So, simple lesson. Keep your mouth shut, right? <laughs> but that can't be the end all be all. Don't just come and be quiet. <laughs> there must be some things that we can do. And for this, I, I read uh, from Emmanuel Katongole, who is, who is a Ugandan theologian um, whose specialty is actually reconciliation. Emmanuel Katongole. Mm-hmm. Um, biblical lament teaches us both what must be learned and what must be unlearned as we respond to those who are hurting. Katongole proposes that in order to live well in a broken world, we must unlearn three things, speed, distance, and innocence. Well, let me look at each of those items. To unlearn speed. The temptation when we encounter brokenness is really to fix it quickly. That's what we are good at. That's what America is good at. That's my sibling telling me that the hospital will take care of the cops. We want to get rid of the disturbance as quickly as we can and move on with life. It's an interruption. You see, speed is a form of denial. It numbs pain. So distance allows us to continue with the praise and victory narrative that we love so much. It allows us to point fingers from afar and to become a backseat driver that says, here's what you should do and here's what you should do. It is a temptation to fix quickly. To write a check and send it off. There's a Rwandese uh, proverb that says, if you cannot hear the mouth eating, you cannot hear the mouth crying. You see, in order to here, a mouth eating, you have to be there eating with the other person. And the third thing that he says we should unlearn is innocence we mentioned. Detached analysis. Speed and distance make innocence easy. It is easier to deny any part or any responsibility in the hurting of the of the loved ones or the people that we are with. Denial propagates injustice is what it does. You become part of the problem like Job's friends did. It is segregation in safe places. Eugene Peterson writes, the book of Job is not only a witness to the, to, uh, to the dignity of suffering and God's presence in our suffering, but also our primary biblical protest against religion that has been reduced to explanation or answers. Many of the answers that Job's friends give him are technically true, but it is the technical part that ruins them. There are answers without personal relationship, intellect without intimacy. The answers are slapped onto jobs, ravaged life, like labels on a specimen bottle. So we must learn speed, distance, and innocence in order to live well and be agents of shalom in a broken world. Let me briefly look at the other side. What then should we learn? And Katongole proposes. Pilgrimage, relocation, and this is my reward in Katogul's words, identification. All right? and, and, and for this, we reach into the New Testament um, a story in, uh, in John chapter 11, and I will not read it all. all right? And Jesus gives us an example of a situation where he is lamenting with his friends. This is in the, de- the story of the death of Lazarus. And just one thing about Jesus, he's the perfect example, right? Because he's fully human, he can see our side, and he plays our part of responding as a human being, but he's also God. And he knows what's happening behind the curtains, right through this story. It's like reading a text and having the interpreter, the writer, right there with you. That's what I found this passage to be. Now, one writer about this passage, the central message is not lament. The central ma- uh, message is victory. Jesus, as victory over death, it is that he is indeed the Messiah. Nevertheless, I think it models well how we can deal with those who lament. So the context is, uh, is, is Matthew chapter 10. Is Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. When the, D- the Jews demanded... That he would declare whether he was the uh, Messiah once and for all, and when he did, they tried to seize him and to kill him, and it says uh, he somehow slipped through their hands. It wasn't his time. He got away and was trying to get away from the Jews, and so he goes to the eastern, to the east uh, shores of, of of the Jordan place where he had been baptized. And the reason why he goes to the east side of the Jordan is because that is under another jurisdiction. The Jews can't get in there because that's under the jurisdiction of of, of Herod Antipas. When he received the news of Lazarus' illness in the beginning of chapter 11, he delayed another two days. These are the first words he read. He didn't rush. Instead, he chose to engage in a journey, a pilgrimage. Jesus could just have said the word at that point. And his friend would have been healed. We've seen uh, those examples of when he did that. But he chose to model for us the way of pilgrimage. The death of Lazarus is not just a project for him to fulfill, it wasn't a mission. Pilgrimage is a posture very different from mission. The goal of a pilgrim is not to solve, but to search. Not so much to help, but to be present. Pilgrims do not rush to a goal, but slow down to hear the crying. The pace is much slower, much more reflective, writes Katongole. Jesus allowed himself to be interrupted in what he was doing, and chose the way of pilgrimage pilgrimage to the place of the brokenhearted. Again, let's just have a bit of a glimpse now behind the curtains. Jesus knew that by the time he was receiving this news. Lazarus was actually already dead. You see, the family um, in Bethany, Bethany is a day's walk away from the place of baptism, 20 miles or so. And so it must have taken a day for whoever brought the news to come from there. And then Jesus delayed for another two days. And then he took another a third day, which is by now the fourth, to get to, where, um, uh, to the home in Bethany. That's four days. And what we read in John chapter 11 verse 17 is that on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Jesus knew all these things right from the beginning. And there are many people gathered in the home because that's what they did in that culture. When Martha hears Jesus coming, uh, she goes to meet him, and Jesus consoles her. He doesn't explain why he delayed. He just points to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Perhaps instead of trying to explain things, we can just point people to Jesus in their time of suffering. We can join the story. Okay, now we move ahead and just join the story as Martha goes back to the house to relieve Mary from hosting and to tell her that Jesus is here. And this is uh, verse 28 of John 11. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside, Jesus came to where the hurting family was. The second thing about the way to do with people who lament is relocation. Relocation is lessening the distance. And this is an extended story of, of Jesus reuniting with this family that was hurting. It wasn't even safe for him to relocate. Remember, this was the place where a few days before they had tried to kill him. But he chose to go. Job's companions started with the right thing. They relocated. Later, when they started talking, like we said, Job cried out in uh, in chapter 21, verse 5, Look at me and be appalled. Clap your hand over your mouth. When Jesus saw her weeping, back to John 11, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was so deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And the shortest scripture that we know, verse, Jesus wept. By owning the pain of his friends, Jesus teaches us the next thing about lament, identification with the hurting. He became them, despite all that he knew, including that he would raise him. Identify with those who are hurting, not in a patronizing way, but weeping from the gut, hurting with those who hurt. Sum Chang Ra writes that lament is not a hand down, it's not even a hand up, it is a hand across. Only after joining in their lament fully did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Healing and fixing problems was not a substitute for pilgrimage that Jesus took, relocation or identification with the hurting. Finally, this is the final, final. Then you can go and have coffee. (laughs) Healing. Um, Finally, just want to say that lament is not a side offering. I say this. It's not a side offering in the scriptures. It is at the core of the gospel. Because lament points us to Jesus. Eugene Peterson writes, perhaps the greatest mystery in suffering is how it can bring a person into the presence of God in a state of worship, full of wonder, love, and praise. As Job rages in pain and protest, we find that the worst that can happen to us has been staked out as God's territory. In the, next, in the context of lament is where we find Jesus saying to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And in our very broken wall we join the psalmist in Psalm 42, verse 6 to 8. And I'm going to have it in two versions up there. And this is just a song of lament. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the height of Hermon. From Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep. And I'm going to add lament calls to lament. In the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with with me. A prayer to the God of my life. And in the message, it ends Then God promises to love me all day. Sing songs all through the night. My life is God's prayer. God meets you at the deepest place of lament and he laments with you. My life is God's prayer. Pastor Niall, with would you? Thank you.